when did you first hear the story of Noah and the ark? Can you remember? Uh, Was it someone reading to you from a children's Bible, perhaps? Was it in a Sunday school class? Probably more important than when and where you first heard, I wonder, what did you take away from that story when you first heard it? What amazed you about that story? Was it how all the animals fit into the boat? Was it how it rained and rained and rained and didn't stop raining until the waters covered even the mountains? Was it how obedient Noah was that amazed you? Even amidst the scorn and the mocking, people probably laughing all around him as he built and built and built. We're continuing our time in Genesis this morning in chapter 6. We're continuing looking at the flood. And as we look again this morning at a very familiar story, I want us to carefully consider what it is that we're taking away from this story. What we think the main point is. Steve was trying to steal my thunder earlier, talking about the story of Job. Imagine that. Who do we think this story is all about? I want you to think about those things as I read from this passage. Now, let me give you a little disclaimer before I read. The, the full story of Noah is long. It, it's in four chapters. Chap, begins in chapter 6, doesn't conclude until uh, chapter 9. And I wouldn't dare try to preach all that in one sermon, though it is a unified whole of a passage. So what I'm trying to do is break it up into more reasonable, bite-sized pieces. Now that gets complicated a bit by the way that this story is told. The story is told somewhat in layers. We'll be told something, and then later it'll be repeated, maybe with some different details or some additional details layered on. And so because of that, we're going to get to things this morning in the selected verses that I've chosen We're going to get to things that I don't even mention this morning, but hopefully, Lord willing, I will when they are repeated later on in in the story. Covenant is a big, huge thing. Covenant is mentioned uh, for the first time in the Bible this morning in these verses, the first out of almost 300 mentions of covenant in the scriptures, um, and I'm going to wait to address that. That's going to need a lot more than just a, a point in a sermon, so that's just one example. Um. Yeah, stand if you're able for a bit of a longer passage. It's about 24 verses, I think, if I counted correctly. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 7, verse 10. This is the word of God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive." Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible and authoritative word. Let's pray. God, we need your help. We need your help to understand your word. We need your help to take away from your word the main idea. To see the big picture And to have that big picture pressed upon our hearts. So would you illumine our understanding this morning? Would you help us? Would you keep me from complicating or confusing things? Would you keep us from writing ourselves in as the hero in your story? May we come to the end of this and may we bring you glory. May we exalt the Lord Jesus and may we rest more fully in him. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So you need to know that the Bible's account of the flood isn't alone. There are a lot of flood accounts out there. 
lot of writing in the ancient Near East about a great flood. Maybe in high school you had the misfortune of having to read the Epic of Gilgamesh. Ugh. Gilgamesh tells of a great flood. Many other uh, writings of the ancient Near East. It's, and it shouldn't surprise us that something so cataclysmic, so huge in history would prompt a lot of people to write about it and to record it and try to figure out what in the world was going on with that. But many of those ancient accounts are so very different from the biblical account. They mention how the little g gods were involved with the flood, how they were calling for the floodwaters to come. And it's so petty. Some of them were calling for the floodwaters to come because these humans are so noisy. Wipe them out because their noise is annoying to us. Wipe them out because they're getting out of hand. There's some overpopulation going on. What's even more pathetic, really, in many of these stories is that once these little g-gods have somehow called the floodwaters to come, then they all freak out and are terrified because they can't control the floodwaters that they have asked for. And they're terrified of the very floodwaters that they wanted to come and get rid of the noisy, annoying humans. When you compare those accounts to the biblical account, when you compare those little g-gods to the capital G-O-D, God, how very different he is. A God who's very much in charge. A God who's calling the shots. A God who's not afraid of the waters that he has called forth. A God who the psalmist says in Psalm 29, sits enthroned over the flood. This is the God that we're dealing with in this account. This is the reason that if we're honest, maybe this story even needs renaming. I've only ever heard it called Noah and the Ark. But maybe God and the Ark. God, the chief actor here. This is his show from start to finish. Noah never utters a single word. Now, does God use Noah? Certainly. But make no mistake, this is all about the Lord God. And that's where our focus is going to be this morning. In three areas... This story is all about how God is a God who judges with a flood. This is all about a God who is a God who saves with an ark. And he is a God who's even woven our obedience into his plan. He uses us and our obedience to accomplish his good purposes. So you've got an outline in the worship folder if that helps you. Let's dig in. God is a God who judges. Now, one of the things that I just had to sit with for a little bit and think about and chew on for a while is this absolutely stunning act of judgment on God's part. It is breathtaking in its scope. The, the degree of devastation, the lives lost.
I don't think any of our first hearings of this story emphasized what a serious and sober and somber act of judgment this was. Now, nobody likes to emphasize that because that makes people squirm. And that makes people complain and even down. They say things like, well, I could never believe in a God who would dot, dot, dot. But one of the things that the biblical author does, one of the things that he takes great pains to present and defend and make a case for is the rightness of this judgment. The righteousness of what God is doing here. Would you think for a moment about how, how right it feels when we see justice carried out? And it might be something as silly as a, a, a crime show that you're watching on TV. Or maybe it's something that's happened to you personally or someone close to you where, where you've been wronged. But then justice was brought about. And you know how you feel that deep in your bones? It, it is just right when justice is served. But in a fallen world, that's not always the case, is it? Sometimes justice is, is evaded. Right? Sometimes those, those crime shows, somebody, somebody gets off and it's, it's on a technicality of the law and it just feels so wrong to you and you feel that deep in your bones too. You know that something is not right. So Moses here is very carefully presenting the evidence. He's making the case that what God is about to do is right. It is righteous. It is just. It is proper. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was filled with violence. Now, certainly we've seen recent examples of violence. Cain's violence. Lamech's unabashed violence. But we know that violence isn't just limited to acts of brute force. Violence can also be exploitation. That's what God's prophets would condemn in God's people over and over again. The exploitation of the weak by the strong. The poor by the rich. Three times in two verses we see the earth's corruption. Corrupt used as a noun. Corrupting, used as a verb. This is what has led to this point. It's, it's not a small handful of indiscretions by a couple of bad actors. No, this is commonplace. This is filling the earth. And it has led God to verse 13. I have determined. That's not the word of a knee-jerk reaction. That's not the word of something that God does on a whim. It is careful. It is deliberative. It is now certain and irrevocable. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them. That's actually the fourth instance of that word corrupt.
The earth is corrupt. The people have corrupted it. I, the Lord, will complete its corruption, its ruin, its destruction. God is only completing what the people have already started. He's not coming to an otherwise blissful and beautiful existence of people and out of sheer meanness has decided to inflict some terrible pain and misery on them. No, he has decided, as one commentator puts it, to destroy what was already virtually self-destroyed. We see so very clearly God is a God who judges justly. But even as he judges justly, simultaneously, he's displaying grace and mercy. He's the God who judges and he is the God who saves and allows a new start. He saves with an ark. And he uses Noah. This one last week we saw had found favor in God's eyes. He says to him, Noah, I need you to do something. What is it, Lord? I need you to build an ark. What's that? There will actually be another ark in the Bible. Not the Ark of the Covenant. That's what you're thinking. No, there was another ark. Same word, because Ark of the Covenant uses a different word. No, there's a second ark. And it wouldn't be Noah rescued by it. It would be Moses. That little basket is an ark. Same word. The means of Moses' rescue from certain death. Same word here for Noah's rescue from certain death. It's to be made out of gopher wood. What kind of wood is that? Nobody knows. It's just the transliterated Hebrew word. In Hebrew, it sounds just like our animal, which there's no relation to. (laughs) Gopher. We, We don't know. You see the dimensions here, probably a footnote in your Bible that helps you decipher what those would be in Measurements that you understand, nearly 500 feet long, some 75 feet wide. Somebody did the calculation and said, well, this ark can carry the cargo volume of 450 semi-truck trailers. It's decent sized, I would say. Is it big enough? Is that big enough to hold all of these animals that have been prescribed? Depends on who you ask. Some folks, and I'm kind of amused by this, some folks seem so set on proving that it was possible. Oh yes, we could definitely fit all of these animals in there. We think there were X number of kinds of animals and yada, yada, yada. And you, you didn't have to get the biggest ones. You could get baby animals that would grow up. And, and some of these people, are, they're just all red-faced in there. I'm going to prove this. Because it's like they think that if I can prove that this happened and it wasn't miraculous, then my case is somehow stronger. Which I think is a little counterproductive, really. 
there's, there's definitely some miracles going on here. Now, maybe all the animals fit just fine by themselves. Or maybe the creator of space and time had to miraculously keep the ark from running out of room. Kind of like Jesus had to keep the bread and the fish from running out. There's definitely some supernatural intervention going on at some points along the way. And I don't think that's a problem. Even the simple act of getting the animals to and on the boat. Noah's not out there like running around like crazy trying to catch these things. And trying to make sure that he's got the count just right. And did I get an aardvark or did I get a male aardvark? Or a fi- I, 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 that's not what's going on here. Verse 20 says, all these animals shall come. I, I think it's much like earlier when Adam was naming them all. And, and they just came and they passed by. They obediently processed in front of him. And Adam gave them their names and they moved along. It didn't just happen. He's saving them. He's a God who saves. That in and of itself is miraculous. Some of these other details can be miraculous too. There's no problem there. He's the God who judges and he's the God who saves. But it's not just Noah that's being saved. You say, oh, well, it's Noah and his family. Well, it's not just Noah and his family that's being saved. We need to keep in mind the big picture here. Back in the garden when it all went south and God made a promise, he said, one day, Eve, one day, one of your offspring, he's going to be victorious. He's going to win. One day, Eve, you just wait. The ark isn't primarily about saving Noah or Noah's family. The ark is first and foremost about saving the promised offspring because God is a God who saves. Now, one of the biggest things that I felt like really needed addressing in this story about Noah to try to keep us from taking away the wrong thing we need to look at Noah's obedience. I mentioned this last week. It's easy to read this story, come away with the wrong big idea that that probably many of us were taught the first time that we heard this story. And if we weren't taught it, we just kind of naturally assumed it because we're bent that way. But we take away this moralistic idea All right, don't be wicked like the world. Be righteous like Noah and God's going to save you. It's easy to casually read this story and come away with that. And if that's what we come away with, we've read it wrongly. We need to read carefully and thoughtfully. Last week... I argued that Noah's obedience was not the cause of being favored in God's sight. His obedience was the effect 
of being favored in God's sight. I argued that grace always precedes obedience and righteousness. God will save you, He will rescue you, and then He will make you righteous. Look at the preamble to the Ten Commandments, right? I rescued you, I got you out of Egypt, here's how you're going to live. It is always in that order and never the other way around. Now this week from these verses, it's another opportunity to try to get this right. And I think this is important. Um, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a grace preacher. Maybe you've picked up on that by now. Um, five years. Can you believe five years ago this month is when I started the interim duties? That blows my mind. So you've had five years of week in, week out. I'm a grace preacher. Uh, if I'm going to overemphasize something, it's going to be the transforming power of God's grace. Now, the danger there can be, and I'm conscious of this, I'm trying to be mindful of this, an underemphasis of obedience. Right? So it's important that we look at Noah's obedience this morning. It's a really big deal. But I want us to look at it biblically. And I want us to look at it through the lens and through the eyes of grace. A big deal is made about Noah's obedience. We see the stage set in chapter 6, verse 9. He's righteous. He's blameless. He walked with God. Right? Then we see later in verse 22 of chapter 6, in response to some of these commands, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then he gets some more instructions. And then in chapter 7, verse 5, it's repeated, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Now, this is impressive, right? The picture we get of, of Noah, uh, it, it's constant, it's consistent. It, it is, you know, this obedience is unquestioning. There could be a lot of questions here, right? There could be a, mm, God, are you sure about this? And none of those are recorded. Noah just seems to plod along and to just keep on keeping on and to keep on obeying. And so I want us to carefully consider this. I want us to carefully consider his obedience. I want us to consider our own. I want us to consider how God uses our obedience, how he's woven them into his plans and purposes. So three specific things. So I, don't, I, I think I put bullet points there maybe for you. Three specific things to consider about obedience. The first is that it's important. It matters. The, the, the full-throated, full-throttled preaching of grace ought not to minimize the importance of obedience. Obedience leads to life. It leads to flourishing. When we live life the way God designed it to work, it just works. It works so much better. Right? It, it, disobedience leads to death and to ruin. We should pursue obedience. We must. There ought to be a difference between Jesus' followers and the rest of the world. God ought to be able to say of any one of us what he said of Noah in chapter 6, verse 9. Oh, she's righteous. Oh, he's blameless in his neighborhood. She walks with me. Now, 
None of these things, just like what we saw with Job earlier from the reading, none of these things indicates sinlessness or perfection. What it does indicate is the orientation of one's heart. Is it toward the Lord? Is it toward his commands and his ways? If it is, then that's just proof of the new birth. That's proof that you have a new heart because your old heart certainly wasn't directed that way. Do you have a heart that's undivided? Or is it compartmentalized and you've got this section of your heart that, that does things when people are looking... This other part, when no one's watching, or when I think no one's watching, here's how I really am. This speaks to integrity. All of these things are vitally important. We should be pursuing them. That is the first thing to consider about Noah's obedience and about our obedience. It is important. And the second thing to consider about obedience is that it is insufficient. Pursue it all you want, and you should. Obey all you can. You should. Do the next right thing, and then do the next right thing after that. But it will never be enough. Now, How do we see the insufficiency of Noah's obedience here? I mean, he does get really high marks. Lots of praise, it seems, righteous and blameless. He did all that God commanded. How do we know that that's not enough? Because Noah still needed an ark. Noah still needed a boat to get into to survive the judgment. He still needed to be rescued. His obedience was good, but it didn't hold water. We also know his obedience was insufficient because of these numbers of animals that he's instructed to bring on board. Now, most folks only remember the part about bring a pair of each animal. What about the sevens business? The more specific instructions that we get in chapter 7, verse 2, God adds on. For the clean animals bring seven. Now, ESV calls that seven pair. It's literally just seven, so you do with that seven what you want. Calvin said, I think it's three pair plus an extra to get to seven. Bottom line is, you need more of the clean animals. Why? Well, we'll see in a few chapters, because you still got to make sacrifices. You still got to bring an offering if you're going to come acceptably into the Lord's presence. We know Noah's obedience is insufficient because he's still got to make sacrifices. That's how we know it was insufficient. But why was it insufficient? Why would Noah's obedience not hold water? Because it had holes in it. It was tainted by the 
stain and the guilt of sin. Here's your Calvin quote for the day. Since some fault always adheres to our works, it is not possible that they can be approved except as a matter of indulgence. The grace, therefore, of Christ and not their own dignity or merit is that which gives worth to our works. You see, these works of ours, this obedience of ours, is only ever fueled by grace, but it's also ever only accepted because of God's grace. Every good thing we do, somebody said, and I can never remember who it was, even our tears of repentance need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Our obedience is important. And it is also insufficient all by itself. The third point that we need to remember about Noah's obedience and ours is that its starting point and its ending point and everything in the middle must always and only be by faith. Hebrews eleven seven by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. If his obedience was by faith, if ours must be by faith, how do we get started in that? Well, it's in believing what God has said. For Noah, it was believing the warning. Faith and therefore our obedience, has its beginning in believing the Word of God. I'm going to destroy the world, he said. Noah had to believe that was true. I'm going to save you, I'm going to rescue you in this wooden vessel that you're going to build. He had to believe that was true. Paul tells us in Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing the message. Right, so this is very specific. This is very objective when we say that obedience has to be by faith. This isn't Oprah faith, right? Oh, everybody's got to have faith. And just believe. No, this is very specific. It's objective. It is tied to something. It is tied to the truthful reality expressed by God in his word. Noah heard the warning. He believed the warning. He acted on the warning. He started building. No doubt he must have had to continue going back to God's word. Now, what is it that God said? I'm sure he had to go back to that a thousand times over the course of a hundred years building this thing. 
he and his sons cutting down all those trees, hauling all those trees, fashioning boards out of those trees, connecting all those boards together, making the biggest wooden vessel ever, perhaps. A hundred long years. Think about the scoffing and the mocking that he must have endured. How he had to keep going back to what God had said and believe what God said. All right, you're going to judge? All right. All right, you're going to rescue? Okay. The author to the Hebrews at the beginning of chapter 11 defines faith for us. It's being certain of what you cannot see. It's the conviction of things not seen. Noah didn't wait until it started raining. It wasn't the the rising floodwaters that said, oh my, this is true. (laughs) His belief was based on what God said. This is the basis of Noah's obedience. It must be the basis of ours. And you and I need to hear the same warning today. God is going to judge the world, but He has promised rescue. All who trust in Noah's offspring, this offspring of the woman, preserved in that ark that Noah built, that offspring who would not endure just floodwaters, but the deluge of God's wrath poured out for our sin and rebellion. The one whose obedience was perfect. It was all that it should be. It was all that ours should be. It had no holes. It had no taint of sin. The rescue that has been promised. The obedient response of faith is all that is required. Father, would you help us to understand rightly this story about you. This story about how you found favor, about how Noah found favor in your sight. And you brought about his obedience as a result. How you by faith counted him as righteous, though he was not really. How you used his obedience in building the ark and going in the ark. You used his obedience in your great plan to bring us a Savior, to rescue us. But God, grant the faith that we need to believe you, to take you at your word. May we find your favor and grace there, and may it lead to lives filled with obedience. Help us to get that connection right. Help us to get the ordering of those things right. Do it for your glory. Do it for our good, we ask in Jesus' name.
Amen. Please stand and let's sing together.